those of you that I've not had an opportunity to meet, my name is Doug DeMint. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here, and we're glad you're here today. Last week, we began a series called Beyond. In other words, we're beginning to take a look at eternity. What is beyond this life? And uh, the number of questions and calls and things that I had from this past week indicates that the interest is high in wanting to know what's going on. And today, when, when Pastor Jeff and I were talking about what to put on the sign, I told him, I said, the title of the message is going to be Confronting, Confronting Our Death. Now, I recognize that that is not the most attractive title to put out in public. We didn't expect that there was going to be a load of people just coming in today to see how to confront their own death. And yet, as we relate to what's going on within our life and what the Word has to say, this is an important discovery for each of us. A number of years ago, Martin Bashir did an extended interview with Michael Jackson. Followed him around for about two months. And one of the things that this documentary revealed was that Michael Jackson had an obsession with not wanting to age and not wanting to die. The theme of the place where he lived, he named Neverland and, and created a place where he wanted children to be all of the time and had a zoo there and Martin, as he was walking through the house, recognized that Michael Jackson had an obsession with Peter Pan. And when he asked him, why is there Peter Pan statues everywhere? Why are there themes of that all over your house? And Michael Jackson said, because I want to be Peter Pan. I don't ever want to grow up. He was following him shopping one day and walked into a place where they were selling coffins for the rich and famous. Martin Bashir asked him, which one of these coffins would you want to be buried in? And Jackson instantly replied, I don't want any of them because I don't want to die. I want to live forever, and I'll do everything in my power to make sure that that happens. On June the 25th, 2009, Michael Jackson died at Neverland because it was not within his power to stop death from coming. You see, death is a constant reminder of our inability to control our humanness, and we don't like it. If you have your Bibles or you have your Bible app on your phones, if you don't, you can look up above me, but I want to draw some thoughts from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, or at least use that as a springboard into the topic of confronting our own death today passage of scripture simply says this, and it is appointed unto men once to die. Now, if death were the end of the existence, then you could end that verse right there. But following that, it says this, but after, in other words, there's something after death, but after this, the judgment. Now, I know that we live in a day and age where we as humans do everything in our power to not age or to age gracefully. We check out every medical breakthrough that's possible to give us longer lives. There, there are, are billion-dollar businesses that are based on trying to keep ourselves young and trying to keep ourselves fit, all in a hope that we will either not look our age or that we will be able to somehow expand our lifespan so that we can avoid facing death as long as is possible. This morning, if you have your bulletins, there's an outline there, and two or three points that I'd like to focus on this morning, and the first one is this. Where did death originate? 
Why is it we have to face death in the first place, and where did it come from? If you have your Bibles, you can turn in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the first verse that death is ever mentioned in Scripture. It says, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden. So for all of you that thought Adam was created in the Garden, I want you to know he wasn't. He was created somewhere and then placed into the Garden of Eden. And he was there to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So God very clearly indicates to man after he has created him that there are multiple great decisions that he can make, and there's one bad one. And in the idea of all of the things that he could do, and when his wife was created, we recognize that they made a bad decision. In fact, as we look at death, death by definition is this, the absence or withdrawal of breath and the life force that makes movement, metabolism, and interrelation with others possible. In the Bible, death is more than just the cessation of physiological processes, but it says this in Psalm 90, verse 3. The body returns to the dust, and the spirit goes back to God who gave it. So we understand that the death of a human body does not mean the death of the soul. The death of a human body does not mean that everything that we are, from the moment that you were created... The moment that you were created, there was a soul that was given to you that is eternal in its nature, and nothing that happens to your body can keep that soul from being eternal. So following Adam and Eve disobeying God's direct command not to eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil, there are immediate consequences of sin that are infested and infected within their human bodies that still infect us as a race today. In fact, turn if you would to Genesis chapter 3. I want to read some verses to you from verses 16 through 24 to give you an idea of what is one of the most discouraging passages of scripture in the whole Bible because it sets the tone for what happens to us and what is happening to us today. At this point in time, Adam and Eve have both participated in eating of the fruit They recognized instantly that something changed within them. Their innocence was gone. They looked at each other and recognized that they were naked. They became shameful. They hid from God. And as God was coming to walk with them in the garden, as he did every day, they hid from him. He confronts them, and after blaming, first of all, the serpent and blaming the woman, God gets around to the fact that both of them had made a decision to break the command that he had given to them, and he begins to speak to them of the curse the curse that will come as a result of their disobedience. And in verse 16, he says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So all of you who are mothers that remember well that moment, it's all her fault. Pastor Mark and I were trying to discuss a little this week. I wonder what it was like before. I won't tell you what all we talked about because it 
He's got a very creative mind. Verses 17 through 19. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, this is interesting. The first curse that he gives to Adam for his disobedience is not to Adam. For all of you who believe that you can sin and that you can do anything, and, and, the, and the word is this. It, it doesn't matter because it only affects me. I want you to know that sin reaches far farther than you ever thought. It goes far beyond you. Don't let the enemy lie to you that anything you do only affects you. The first thing that took place is he looks at Adam and he says, The earth, the ground is now cursed because of you. And then he begins to say, as a result of that, it's not going to be as easy for you to survive anymore. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, he suddenly had days of his life which he did not have before because there had been no expiration point before this. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. In other words, the ground will maintain its ability to produce, but what had always been produced in good will now give you competition and there will be weeds and thistles and thorns that will make it hard for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. And then in verse 19, it says this, Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. And Adam suddenly came to the realization he was no longer immortal. His decision brought death into the world in verse 21 it says the lord god made garments of skin for adam and his wife and he clothed them in other words from this moment blood had to be shed in order to cover up their cover up their shame animals had to be killed and it is inferred here that god himself did this it was the beginning of sacrifice the shedding of blood that would cover shame that would be a theme throughout the rest of scripture and in verse 22, and Lord God said, and I'm going to read this the way it's interpreted, and then I'm going to tell you from the original the way that it would be better interpreted. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What was taking place here is the conversation of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, looking at what had taken place in mankind's life, says to them as they're speaking, Behold, look what sin, the sin of man has done. The man who was one of us, formed at first in our image, to only know good. Look how sad the condition is now. In other words, what God has created within humanity when he made us was never to know evil. It was never to have an evil thought. Never to have a selfish thought. We were created only for good things, to have immortal life in him where there would be blessings flow. But because of this disobedience, death entered in, and so did a knowledge of things evil that our mind could now produce. And one of the more fascinating verses, he says, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him. I told you at the beginning there are some verses that are really easy to translate and others that are a little more difficult. I want to be really, really clear on what's taking place here. There's two thoughts that come from 
why they were banished and why they were not allowed to come near the tree of life. The first one is this. At man's fall, when sin entered in and they were infected with sin that would lead to death, God wanted to make sure that his claim to eat of the tree of life was ended in order that man might not mistakenly think that now that I know I am evil, if I can just get to the tree of life, it will become a salvation to me and it will restore to me what I had before I fell. Now we know as we look at scripture that that would not be the case because only the sacrifice of Jesus can restore not the fruit of the tree of life. And so in order that their wrong thought about this would be hindered, he stops them from there. The second thought is this. When sin had entered into Adam and Eve's earthly body, death became a part of that. They were then in a fallen nature. They were no longer righteous. They were no longer pure. They were infected with sin to death. If they had eaten of the fruit of the tree of life in that condition, salvation never would have been possible for them. They would have lived an immortal life in a fallen condition without ever having the hope of Jesus Christ coming and changing the condition, which is why it was so important to him that he put cherubim and a flaming sword in front of it to keep them from eating it while they were fallen because in the mind of God, salvation's plan was already starting. The tree of life will be available to us when we stand in the hallways of glory. The Bible tells us in Revelation 22 where it is and that we will be able to eat of it then after we have experienced death within this body or rapture within this body and have entered into God's house because our name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. Then it will be restored to us. So had they eaten it in a fallen state, they would have been without hope of escape and they would have lived forever in the condition of lostness. And mercifully, God did not predict permit this to happen but in that instant Adam's body which had been strong and full of life was now feeble and dying his soul which had been pure and holy was now depraved and vile and his mind which was so full of wisdom and knowledge and and creativity is now darkness and ignorance and the man who was the darling of heaven has now been alienated from God the power of sin that brings death Next week when I talk about the difficult doctrine of hell, we will see the power of sin lived out in the unrepentant, and it will be a difficult, difficult day. But in that moment, Adam began to die, and hope for mankind was lost without Jesus Christ, who said that there will come a day that he who overcomes, he will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As I looked at this, I almost began to think of it this way. Once sin had entered into the body of Adam and Eve, once they became mortal, once they had a lifespan and a date of death, it was was as if death became the gift from God so that they wouldn't have to forever live in a fallen state. Now, I know that when we talk about death, thinking of it as a gift is difficult even for us who are redeemed because that's not something that we would normally think about. But there is a gift that God gives to us 
Most of the time when we think of death, we think of it in ways and terms that it's never fair. Death is, is never fair. In fact, it's interesting that in scriptures, as you continue to read chapters 3 and 4 of, of Genesis, you'll discover the first person to die, it wasn't fair. Because the first person to die was not Adam to die because of his sin. Or it was not Eve to die because she was the one that took the fruit first. It was not Cain who would be the first murderer, but it was Abel, the only righteous one. Abel was the first to die. So immediately, death enters into life to prove that I'll take anyone at any time, and it's never fair. And today we look and we see that there's cancer. And there's accidents and hundreds of different diseases that look about waiting for an opportunity to devour us. And we as believers in Christ, though we no longer fear death, we still have a repulsion to it because we know that it is never fair if it was only fair. Which leads us to the second point. The dying process of the body does not touch our soul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 18, the scripture says, Therefore do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What Paul is talking about here when he's talking about our outward self, it's, it's this flesh and blood body that we have. Because from the moment that you were born, you're growing to a point where you're going to die. And as I said earlier, we do everything in our power to try to make death look good on us. The scripture indicates to us that there's a groaning that comes. And in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it talks about our bodies being jars of clay or earthen vessels. In other words, there's something that's going to decay there. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 3, I love this passage, is it talks about the aging process. It says, when the keepers of the house tremble, which is the support of our legs, when we no longer have the strength, and the strong men stoop, in other words, that's speaking of the fact that even in our bone structure, we begin to bend over with age. When the grinders cease because they are few, in other words, talking about you losing your teeth. And those looking through the windows grow dim. That means it's getting harder and harder for you to see. And when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when it's getting harder and harder to hear, you're dying. And indicates to us that with this process, there is a groaning. The earth is groaning, waiting for the return of the Lord. Our bodies groan as we get older. Cindy and I, when we were uh, on an anniversary trip for our 20th anniversary, we thought we were going to be so cool that I rented a convertible red Camaro. Oh, it was beautiful. And as we're driving along where we were, we came to the hotel, and there was another couple that was about our age that had rented the exact same car. And as we pulled up, the one thing I didn't know when I rented it is they're low. And as I opened the door, and the man that was pulling up next to me opened the door, both of us get out, and it sounded like this. Oh! And we looked at each other and busted out laughing. We looked cool. But man, was it hard to get in and out of that car. 
And so Paul is speaking here that there's this earthly part that groans. We age, we hurt, we get arthritis, we lose our hair or it changes color. But in the middle of this, Paul says, but there's something else going on. There's an inner man on the inside that has been created eternal that can be untouched by the decay of the outer body. And while your body is growing old, the inner man is growing stronger and stronger because the Lord is feeding that on the inside of you because it will last forever. There's an eternal thing going on. I have laughed at my grandfather, and I've told you this story before, but the older he got, the more he would have these spiritual moments at weird times, like walking in the vegetable aisle of the grocery store, and suddenly he'd just begin to speak in tongues, and we're going, okay, I'm going to the milk aisle. But what I begin to recognize is the older he got, the less he cared who was around because his inner man being strengthened by the Spirit was bursting forth though the outer man was dying. So Paul can look at the process and he says these things are happening simultaneously. Your body is dying. You're getting older. Put on as much makeup as you want. Take as much Botox as you want. You're still dying. But simultaneously, there's something happening from the life within you in Christ that's being renewed. So Paul is calmly watching his own deterioration as an outer man. And he says, even if my enemies kill me and hasten the process, then all they have done is rush me into the presence of the Lord. I can't lose. I've got it made here. It changes the way we look at death. And so he throws out some contrasts here for us to look at. He says, what we're going through now is momentary compared to the eternal, which is to come. What we're going through is light right now set against the weight that far outweighs anything that we go through now. He says, the affliction that we have now is going to be replaced with glory in the presence of the Lord. And if you remember last week, I had that rope that had just a little bit of red on the end. And I said, we worry so much about the lifespan when there's an eternity that's coming. And he says, in the end, when we look back at this, we're going to think, wow. I'm so glad I knew Jesus. So glad I knew Jesus. Because there's nothing that we will go through earthly that will be compared to the heavenly glory. John Rogers was a Protestant martyr. He was burned for his faith in 1555, and the French ambassador at the time was forced to watch this execution so that he could report on it. And here's what he wrote back. He wrote home and said, Rogers looked like a man on his way to his wedding when he was walking toward his execution. That is the way Christians face death. On the way to the wedding. So it's encouraging to know that whatever suffering we might endure now in this age, which is characterized by pain and injustice, it cannot overturn and it cannot undermine the purposes of God who in the child of God, the inner man grows stronger and stronger and stronger. So what's it like to die? What is it like to die? Cindy and I were talking this week, and I think both of us are convinced that the fear of death that believers have has far more to do with the process of dying than the destination following death. Is that true for you? You're not so worried about heaven, it's just... What am I going to have to do to get there? You ever have conversations of 
man, I don't want to die of cancer. I don't want to die with this. I don't want to die with that. Because it's, it's not, it's, it's not the where we're going. It's the process we worry most about. So how does the Bible describe the transition from the process of human body to death? What, what happens when we die? There are a number of different things that are described in the New Testament, but I want to take the top four that are mentioned more than others and just give you an idea. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul's speaking. And he says this, Now we know. Now, I, I encourage you, if you have Bibles or uh, you have the Bible app on your phone, underline this part. Now we know. That if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. He says, now we know that if. Now, as I get into this, I want you to understand that the reason Paul said, didn't say when, but if, is because Paul, when he was writing this, had the hope that he would be part of the saints that would be raptured. Jesus has said, I'm going to come again. And so he's writing this saying, one of two things is going to happen. Either... I'm going to die in this body, or he's going to come back for his church and I'll be part of that. How many would you rather that? Just There's a lot of you who would rather die. What is wrong with you? I'd rather be raptured, honestly. Just being honest here. Oh, pastor, you're so weak. Yep. So he, he begins to describe the process, and he says, here's what your body is like. A tent. Now, now, Pastor Mark screwed this thing in way too good. So I can't throw it around. But I want you to get a sense that when Paul is describing the human body and we are in a dying process, he says, I want you to understand that life on earth is like this. This is your body. It's thin. It's weak. It's flimsy. If this wasn't screwed in the ground... Two or three of you breathing on it could turn it over. It has no foundation. There's nothing there. And he says, this is the human body. So for us, death, he said, would be as simple as folding the tent up, putting it back in the, in the container it came from, and that would be the description of death. He goes, it's, our earthly bodies are so flimsy. They're so flimsy. But he said, here's what we know. I know. He doesn't say we guess. He doesn't say we hope. He doesn't say I've got my fingers crossed on this one that I think I've got this one right. He didn't say we think so. He didn't say, you know, there are many that believe. He said, this we know. Folks in the church, we need to have a knowledge that goes beyond our fears that this I know of death. I know that when I die, I'm in the presence of the Lord. I know that I'm there. I know what's going to happen. It's alive in my spirit. So what do we know when we confront death? We know that our earthly body is like a tent. It's, it's transitory, without foundations. It's, it's pegged to the ground by ropes and stakes, and they're easily pulled. And the tent is easily folded. It's portable. This was never made to be permanent. But I want you to think about the building that this is set up in. Yesterday when the wind chill was 16 below zero, would you have rather been outdoors than that or would you have rather been in here? Because this is what God compares it to. Your life right now, it's like that, but when you get to heaven, you've got a building with a foundation that I have built. There's something that I've been working on for you. And so it removes the connotation of being a pilgrim in a tent to something of a permanence 
when we get to heaven. Now, I like this because Paul, as you recall in Scripture, he was a tent maker. And so it would be easy and natural for him as a tent maker to think, man, this one, you know, my, I'm making tents which in the wind just can get so messed up, and that's what it's like in my body. And he says, now we live in a tent, but we will be in a building then. When you fold up the tent, that's what dying is like. There's another analogy that is listed in Scripture, and it's called restful sleep. What's it like to die? In Luke chapter 8, verses 51 through 53, Jesus was walking in with his disciples and was about to encounter a girl that had died. It said, when he entered the house, he did not allow anyone to go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, everyone was weeping and mourning for her, and Jesus said, stop weeping. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. They went from weeping to laughing in a second. You notice that? So he closed the door, and he went in there, and he told her, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And so when describing what is death like for the believer, it's like going to sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but last night may have been harder for you to go to sleep because you lost an hour. But it's generally not very hard for me, and it certainly is without fear, to go into my room and lay my head down on the pillow, punch it once or twice to get it right, lay down, boom, I'm out. That's not a hard process. In the New Testament, in more than one scripture, also in John 11, 11, he talks about Lazarus falling asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, I tell you, mystery, you're not all going to go to sleep. In other words, what's it like to die? It's like going to sleep. Kind of take some of the fear out of that. The third analogy that's used to describe what it's like to die is found in Philippians 1.23. And as I read this, I'll, I'll explain it to you. It says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, the word depart in the original Greek was a sailor's term, which is why it describes dying like being a sailor. It, it's a term of, of like those who would lift up an anchor. If you're, in, if you're in a harbor, you lift up an anchor and you raise the sails and suddenly the ship does what it is supposed to do and enters out into the water where it needs to be. So Paul's description is for us to die is as simply as pulling the anchor out of this world and letting the wind of the Spirit take us to where our destination should be. And then the last one is we discussed just a little bit last week in Luke 16, 22, being carried by angels. It says, the time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. How many of you like this one? The angels. Now, for those of you who have ever had the experience of being in the presence of a godly person, when they leave this earth in death, most people I've talked to said, there's something spiritual that takes place there. There's a calm and a peace. You know why? Because the angels came in and said, oh, belongs to Jesus. Here we go. And you begin to sense in your spirit, some of you, your spirit is alive and tingly at that moment when the presence of God's servants come in and say, we've got a job. There's a home prepared. We're taking them home. Carried by the angels. Clearly, Scripture indicates to us that the, the process of dying is not a fearful experience when Christ is your Savior. Sometimes we get this idea 
that when we pray for people who are not well, when we pray for people that are ill, or pray for people that have cancer or diseases or have been in terrible accidents, we pray and say, oh God, we, we pray with faith believing that he will heal their earthly body. Sometimes we feel that if God does not answer the way that we want him to, that he has let us down. There are moments we think, if I just had the right formula, if I just had the words in prayer, I could, I could change the heart of God. I'd make him do what I wanted to. And God is clearly indicating to us that, listen, 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 there are times when I will supernaturally intervene and I will bring healing to a body on earth. But I need Christians to change the way they think. That there's something prepared on the other side that's going to make this, you're going to wonder why you wanted to stay here. Now, I'm not asking anybody to commit suicide. You need to know that. Because to live is Christ, to die is gain. Sometimes we think, Lord, I want to go to heaven, I just don't want to go today. I don't want to go right now. And I think part of that is because this is what we know. This earth is what we know. And we think it's good. There are other parts of the world that if we lived there, we wouldn't think it's so good. But we are Americans. And we are blessed to live in this country. And as a result of it, we've not had to face some of the difficulties others had. And so we don't want to have to go someplace when this is so good. Lord, is my room in heaven going to be better than my house here? There was a little boy who was dying of an illness. And Peter Marshall was his pastor. And he knew the family well. And. His mother was taking care of this little boy month by month. She was watching him deteriorate. The disease was rapidly taking his life, and the little boy began to understand that as he watched the other boys playing outside the window that he would not be ever able to join them again. He came to know that he was dying, and one day when his mother was reading to him the book of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, they get to the last glorious battle, and so many knights met their death in that battle, and as she closed the book, her son was very quiet, and she could tell that his mind was stirring and he was thinking. And then he asked this question that was weighing on his heart. He said, Mom, what is it like to die? Does it hurt? And she jumped up from beside his bed, and she ran into the kitchen because tears were falling from her face, and as she fled to the kitchen, she tried to regain some composure, and as she was there, she began to pray, Oh, God, I, I need you to give me a good answer. I need you to help me so that I can bring some solace to my son. And as she was standing there, the Lord began to speak to her heart, and she turned around and she walked back into his bedroom. And she said, Do you remember when you were just a little boy? You would play outside all day long. And at the end of playing all day long, you would be so tired and worn out, you'd come in and we would sit down and you would eat the evening meal. And, and after that, you'd go into mom and dad's bedroom and you'd lay on our bed and you'd fall fast asleep. She says, but the next morning you always woke up and you were in your bedroom and you were in your pajamas. The boy says, yeah, I remember that. The mother said, here's what happened in the night. Daddy came along. And he saw you in his bed and he picked you up and he took you into the, your room and he put your pajamas on and he laid you in your own room and in your own bed and he kissed you and he tucked you in she said son 
death is just like that. We just wake up one morning, we find ourselves dressed in new clothes, and we're in a room that's made just for us, where we belong. It's the room that the Lord has made just for you. Because Jesus had died for us and given us a hope eternal in Him. And because He died and because He rose again, death will be just like that. The little boy took a deep breath and relaxed, and he says with a smiling face, I get it. I get it. My Heavenly Father's big, strong arms are going to carry me to my own room. I want you to stand with me. Let's sing this song together. Father, you're dreaming. And Moody replied, I am not dreaming. 
I have been within the gates. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. This is glorious, he declared. And with that, slipped into eternity. The fact that we don't view death with more optimism just might be because we think of death as taking us from home rather than bringing us to home. Jesus, throughout all of time walking, he said, this is not your home. We're just visitors here. There's a home prepared on the other side. This morning, I want to give you the opportunity, if you have listened to this message and you have listened to it, knowing that in your life there is sin that is keeping you, you've never yet responded to the message of Jesus Christ to make him your Savior, I want you to know this. That is the one eternal decision that determines whether you will be with him in heaven or whether you will face the consequences of your sin forever under the wrath of God. Now, I want you to pray for me next week as we talk about the doctrine of hell. I want you to pray that God would use that to bring people into the kingdom, not from fear, but because they love him. But if you're here today and you need Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to pray for you. We have altar workers and deacons and their spouses that will be joining us in the front. And at the end of this service, I'm going to invite you. Do not leave here if you don't know Jesus. It is the one decision that determines whether you are in heaven or not. Not that every path leads because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is him who gave himself for you to reverse the curse so that you may eat of the tree of life in his righteousness and not in your sin. Father God, I pray right now for those who have a knot in their throat, their stomachs are tight because of the convincing power of your Holy Spirit. They're telling them right now, don't you leave here until you have made a decision. I ask right now, Lord, that within their own lips they would say, Jesus, I receive what you have done, that you paid a penalty I cannot pay. Forgive me of my sins and I'm going to turn my life around and become a follower of you because I desire to see you and spend eternity with the Savior of my soul. And as they pray that prayer, I ask, oh God, that you would open the Lamb's Book of Life and put their name in it, which will be the book that determines who is in heaven and who is not. I ask, Lord, that you would also give them the courage to find somebody at this altar to say, I made a decision today to pray with so that they can begin the journey of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that today we would no longer be a slave to... To fear, but that we would be able to walk in the joy and the knowledge that this is an earthly tent and there's something being prepared on the other side way, way, way better than what we see here. And that we would live as unto you to take people with us to heaven. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen and amen. Would our usher workers and would our altar workers please come? If you must go, go in the peace of God. But if you have made a decision today, please come and speak to somebody so that they can help you and give you some material to help you on your journey. God bless you today.